Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by... Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And by best-selling Christian author Jacqueline Brown. Get a free audio copy of her award-winning novel, The Light, Who Do You Become When the World Falls Away? Get the book at sqpn.com slash the light. Appropriate for mature teens and adults. Learn more at Jacqueline-Brown.com. Previously on Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Let my people go. The slaves are mine. Their lives are mine. All that they own is mine. I do not know your God. Nor will I let Israel go. Gather your families and your flocks. We must go with all speed. Go where? To drown in the sea? The Lord of hosts will do battle for us. Behold his mighty hand. Lead them through the midst of the waters. He opens the waters before them. And he bars our way with fire. Let us go from this place. Men cannot fight against a god. Listening to episode 166 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Exodus and whether it really happened. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. The Bible records the story of Moses and the Exodus, the event by which God led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and into the Promised Land. It's a foundational event in the Jewish faith. It's key to Israel's national identity, and it shapes the rest of biblical history. But the Exodus is also the source of debate, and some skeptics have tried to claim it never happened. So what does the evidence say? Did the Exodus really occur? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, what are the sound clips we heard at the beginning of today's episode? They're from the classic 1956 film, The Ten Commandments, starring Charlton Heston as Moses and Yul Brynner as Pharaoh Ramesses II. We heard parts of both Moses's initial confrontation with Pharaoh and from the parting of the Red Sea. The Ten Commandments is an imaginative adaptation of the biblical Exodus story, and it remains the most famous cinematic presentation of the story, though there are more recent ones like the 1998 DreamWorks animated film, The Prince of Egypt, that may be more familiar for younger viewers. I love the Cecil B. DeMille Ten Commandments. When I was a kid, we watched it every Easter in my house. And I can still, um, if I just stop for a second, hear Edward G. Robinson's Dathan saying, where's your God now, Moses? (laughs) I I remember seeing Billy Crystal on like Johnny Carson years ago, impersonating Edward G. Robinson as Dathan saying, where's your Messiah now? See, because, of course, (laughs) Edward G. Robinson played lots of gangsters. It's fantastic. (laughs) Anyway. Where can people read the biblical account of the Exodus? 
Well, it depends on how broadly you want to define the event. It begins in the opening chapters of the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible. There we read about Moses and the conflict with Pharaoh that leads up to the Israelites leaving Egypt. Then in chapter 14, God parts the waters of the Reed Sea and they cross it, which you could consider the decisive moment of the Exodus. But the story keeps going, and they don't actually enter the promised land until several books later in Joshua. If you want to read the basics of the story, though, read the first 15 chapters of Exodus. And they're fairly short chapters, so it's not a lot of reading. I want to back up just a sec. You said that God parted the Reed Sea. Aren't the Israelites famous for crossing the Red Sea? Yeah, but this is a problematic translation. The body of water that we refer to today as the Red Sea is actually a long branch of the Indian Ocean that runs up the eastern coast of Egypt between it and the Arabian Peninsula. But there's a good argument to be made that this body of water is not what the Israelites crossed. In the Hebrew Bible, the term for the body of water they cross is Yam Suf. Yam means lake or sea, and Suf means reed. In fact, when Moses's mother puts him in a basket, she places the basket in the Suf along the Nile, the reeds along the riverbank. So Yam Suf means reed sea or sea of reeds or even lake of reeds. So how did it become translated Red Sea? Did someone just shorten the word reed to red? You might think so, but no. For some reason, when the Septuagint, the main Greek version of the Old Testament, was being translated, for some reason they translated Suf as Eruthra, which means the color red. And Eruthra does not mean the same thing as Suf. One is a color, the other is a kind of plant. So we're not sure why they did that. It looks like a mistake. In any event, the Septuagint was very influential in Christian circles, and so later translations picked this up, which is why most English translations have Red Sea instead of Reed Sea. It's become a, a tradition to translate it that way in many English Bibles. However, there are some Bibles, like the Jerusalem Bible and the New Jewish Publication Society Bible, that have been going back to the Hebrew and translating it as Reed Sea. In that case, where is the Reed Sea? This is debated. It's clearly on the eastern side of the Nile Delta on the way to the Sinai Peninsula that's between Egypt and Israel. But precisely where is something that scholars discuss? There was a string of ancient lakes in this region, and a lot of them had reeds growing in them. One current suggestion is that the Reed Sea was a name for the Bala Lakes near the modern Suez Canal. This fits with some of the geographical descriptions in the book of Exodus. And in the Roman period, the name for this area was Abu Sefeh. And you can hear how Sefeh might be a variant of Suf. But there are other proposed locations and the matter is not certain. Okay, so how does the Exodus itself fit into the overall biblical history? The setup for it begins in the book of Genesis. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are the primordial history. But then in chapter 12, God takes the patriarch Abraham from his home in Mesopotamia and brings him around the Fertile Crescent to what will eventually become the promised land. He then promises him the land, but he says that first, Abraham's descendants are going to spend a long period as slaves in Egypt. This period is alternately described as 400 years in Genesis 15:13 or as four generations in Genesis 15:16. 
In any event, in the time of Abraham's grandson, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, there was a major famine in the area. And to survive, Jacob, or Israel, took his family down to Egypt, which was a major agricultural center that had grain available for purchase. This event is called the Isodus. In Greek, ice, or to pronounce it a little better, ace, means into, while ek means out of. So the Isodus is when the Israelites go into Egypt, and the Exodus is when they come out of Egypt. Wasn't one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, already in Egypt? Yeah, Joseph's brothers had been jealous of him, so they faked his death and sold him into slavery. Joseph then ended up in Egypt, where he rose to become a high official in the court of Pharaoh. And when the family gets there, they are initially treated with honor because of Joseph. They end up settling in the land of Goshen, which is very fertile. It's part of the Nile Delta, and this is where the Nile River fans out as it approaches the Mediterranean Sea. The Delta is the most fertile part of Egypt, so it was a choice area to settle in, and that's where we are at the close of the book of Genesis. So if the Israelites were initially treated with honor, how did they end up becoming slaves? We learn that story at the beginning of Exodus. The Egyptians have had a change of leadership, and in Exodus 1 we read, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the sons of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war befall us, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the sons of Israel. So they made the sons of Israel serve with rigor, and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they made them serve with rigor. When the text says that a new pharaoh did not know Joseph, it means that he didn't respect him or care about what he had done for the previous pharaoh. This may suggest that there had been a change in the dynasty. In other words, one line of Egyptian kings replaced another, so the kings of the new line didn't care what Joseph had done in the service of the previous line of kings. In any event, the Egyptians started pressing the Israelites into service and put them to hard labor. Among the things they had them do was build store cities, that is, cities where grain was stored for the new pharaoh. And two of these cities are named Python and Ramses, which will be important in another episode when we talk about the dating of the Exodus, when it occurred. But then the Egyptians oppressed the Israelites in new ways. Correct. They try to get the Hebrew midwives to kill the Hebrew babies, the male ones, which leads to Moses being hidden and eventually raised in Pharaoh's own court. The Egyptians tell the Israelites to make bricks without giving them straw, which means that they need to take time to gather their own straw, yet they are still expected to meet their regular quota of bricks despite not having the time to do this. Eventually, God commissions Moses to deliver the people from slavery, just like God had told Abraham. But when Moses confronts Pharaoh about this, the king won't listen. So God sends a series of plagues, culminating in the death of the firstborn. The Passover ceremony is instituted, and the Israelites leave, and they are decisively delivered from the Egyptians when they cross the Reed Sea. To get a sense of how this fits with Egyptian history, 
we'll need to know something about Egyptian history itself. So what can you tell us? We've discussed ancient Egypt in several previous episodes. These include episode 6 on the pyramids, episode 28 on Akhenaten, the heretic pharaoh, episode 42 on the possible murder of Akhenaten's son, King Tutankhamun, or King Tut, and episode 89 on the black magic harem conspiracy that ended up taking the life of Pharaoh Ramesses III. For our purposes today, we need to know about the broad sweep of Egyptian history. It begins around 3150 BC or 5,000 years ago in the early dynastic period, which lasted for about 500 years. Then around 2700 BC, a period known as the Old Kingdom begins. This is when the pyramids were built, so any pictures you see of Hebrew slaves building the pyramids are wrong. The Hebrews weren't around. Abraham wasn't even born during the Old Kingdom, much less were the Israelites around. Also, the pyramids were not built by slave labor. The Old Kingdom then became unstable and fell apart, leading to an era known as the First Intermediate Period, where Egypt did not have a centralized government. But eventually, the Egyptians got things back together around 2000 BC and started what's known as the Middle Kingdom, which lasted until about 1650 BC. Then things fell apart again for about a century, which is known as the Second Intermediate Period. And during the Second Intermediate Period, Egyptian authority was so weak that a group of Semitic peoples were able to come in and conquer the part of Egypt up by the Mediterranean Sea, in other words, the Nile Delta. They were called the Hyksos, which means rulers from foreign lands. So they weren't native Egyptians, they were Semites. Sometimes you'll hear the word Hyksos translated as shepherd kings, but that's an older mistranslation. Today, scholars agree that it means foreign rulers. Their capital city was Avaris, which is located up in the Nile Delta. You said they were Semites. Aren't the Israelites also Semitic? Yeah, but there were multiple Semitic peoples. The Israelites were just one of them. So simply because the Hyksos were Semites and the Israelites were Semites does not mean that the Hyksos were the Israelites. People have speculated that there was a relationship between the two groups, but we shouldn't identify them. After all, the Bible doesn't record the Israelites ruling Egypt. There were no Israelite pharaohs in the Bible. But there were pharaohs who were Hyksos. The entire 15th dynasty was composed of Hyksos rulers. As fellow Semitic peoples, could the Hyksos have been friendly toward the Israelites? That's possible. If the Israelites were in Egypt during the reign of the Hyksos, they could well have been friendly to them. In fact, if Joseph came to Egypt during the Second Intermediate Period, and that's a very reasonable conjecture, it could help explain how he became a high official if the reigning pharaoh was a fellow Semite. This also could explain why the family later fell on hard times, because at the end of the Second Intermediate Period, the native Egyptians reconquered the land and drove the Hyksos out. The new native Egyptian pharaohs hated the Hyksos, those foreign rulers, and they would not have looked kindly on those who had been allied with the Hyksos. And of course, the Israelites were allied with the pharaoh who was in power when they arrived. What happened when the Egyptians kicked out the Hyksos at the end of this period? A new era began that is known as the New Kingdom, and it ran from 1550 B.C. to 1069 B.C., about 500 years. 
This is the period that we've most covered so far on the show. It's when the heretic Akhenaten reigned. It's when his son Tutankhamun reigned. And it's when Ramesses III reigned. The only episode we've done that really wasn't in this period was on the pyramids, which are Old Kingdom. This New Kingdom period also is most definitely when the Exodus occurred. The Exodus was a New Kingdom event. It happened sometime in the 500 years between 550 B.C. and 1069 B.C. And we'll do a future episode on precisely when in this time period it took place. Excellent. So from this point, we'll move on to theories and our faith and reason perspectives. But before we do, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make the show possible, including... Nathan C., Hugh P., Rob P., Julie L., and Blair N. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church. By Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And by best-selling Christian author Jacqueline Brown. Get a free audio copy of her award-winning novel, The Light. Who do you become when the world falls away? Get the book at sqpn.com slash the Light, appropriate for mature teens and adults. Learn more at Jacqueline-Brown.com. So, Jimmy, what theories are there about the Exodus and when it occurred? There are two basic ones, that it did occur and that it didn't occur. So that's the issue before us today. Nice and simple. And what do we need to say about the Exodus from the faith perspective? Not as much as you might think. Our key issue, did the Exodus occur, actually can be handled perfectly well from the reason perspective. All right. The two, two major parts of our show down very quick. So let's move on to the reason perspective. What can we say about the Exodus from the reason perspective? Why do some skeptics deny that it happened? Well, skeptics got a skeptic, so it goes with the territory. Starting a couple of centuries ago, a movement began that decided to systematically distrust anything the biblical authors have to say. The idea is that what the biblical authors say should be rejected unless they can be proved correct by independent sources. It's essentially a guilty until proved innocent attitude. At least that's how the attitude works in its pure form. Is that a reasonable position to take? No, because the books of the Bible are not in principle different from other works of ancient literature. Even if someone doesn't accept them as divinely inspired, they should still be evaluated just like the works of other ancient groups. We don't systematically distrust the writings of the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Egyptians or the Greeks or the Romans. I mean, for example, if we read a Roman historian and he says a particular battle occurred under Julius Caesar, we don't demand independent confirmation of that battle from another source. 
uh, the record we have of it from the Roman sources is enough, unless we can show why those sources should be doubted in this particular case. In the same way, if we read a biblical historian and he says that a particular battle occurred under King David, we shouldn't demand independent confirmation from non-biblical authors. The biblical text is itself a historical source just like a Greek or Roman historian is, and we should treat the biblical text the same way. So when using ancient sources from whatever culture, we should read them and critically evaluate them, and the Bible should be treated the same way, even from a secular perspective. In fact, there are reasons to take what the Bible says even more seriously than some other works. For example, the Egyptians never record the pharaohs doing anything wrong or losing battles. By contrast, the biblical documents are much more honest and straightforward about the limits and the defeats of the Israelite kings. The Bible is brutally honest about the sins of even admirable kings like David and Solomon, and they certainly record it when the Israelite kings lose battles. So an attitude of systematic distrust is simply unwarranted and inconsistent with good scholarship. Setting aside a general attitude of skepticism, are there particular arguments that those who deny the Exodus would make? There are a number of them. First, they would argue that we don't have archaeological evidence for the Exodus in the form of Egyptian records that discuss it. Second, they would say that we don't have archaeological evidence of the Exodus like trash pits of the Israelites in the Sinai Desert that they went through. Third, they will point out that the text contains significant number of miraculous events, which they don't accept on philosophical grounds, like the Ten Plagues or the Parting of the Red Sea. And fourth, they will argue that the text of the Pentateuch, containing the book of Exodus, has an impossibly large number of Israelites coming out of Egypt. Well, let's take those in reverse order. What can we say about the number of Israelites who participated in the Exodus? At both the beginning and the end of the book of Numbers, there is a census taken or a numbering. That's why it's called the book of Numbers, because they do these numberings or censuses of the Israelite men who are qualified to fight in battle. So they know how how strong their their military force is. Both censuses have similar numbers. And here's what the first one says. So the whole number of the sons of Israel by their father's houses from 20 years old and upward every man able to go forth to war in Israel, their whole number was 603 alapim, 550. Now, the key word in this is alapim, which is the plural form of elep. There are 603 alapim of Israelite men who were able to fight. But what is an elep? It turns out the term has multiple meanings. It can mean a thousand in which case the text would be describing a fighting force of 600,000 men. If you triple that to account for women and children, you're pushing 2 million Israelites. And that is too many to be a realistic number. The entire population of Egypt in the New Kingdom at any one time is estimated to be just 3 million. And there is no way that two-thirds of the people in Egypt were Israelites with Israelites outnumbering the natives by two to one. So the idea of Israel having a fighting force of 600,000 men is not correct. Then how can we explain what the text says? 
One way would be chalking it up to hyperbole or exaggeration to make a point. Like when we say, thanks a million, we don't literally mean we're thanking a person a million times, we just mean we're very thankful. Hyperbole is a figure of speech in every culture, and it was certainly used among the Hebrews and other ancient Near Eastern peoples. It's especially used when referring to events in the distant past to show how great one's ancestors were. So you could argue that this is what the biblical author is doing. He's using hyperbole to show that at the time of the Exodus, Israel had a powerful fighting force, but we're not meant to take the number literally. But is hyperbole the only explanation for the text? No, there are other ways we could translate the passages about the census. While the term elep can mean a thousand, it also has other meanings, such as tribe, clan, platoon, and military unit. So rather than saying Israel's fighting force consisted of 600,000 men, it may mean that it consisted of 600 platoons or fighting units. And those could be of various sizes. Suppose that each Alep was a group of 100 men. In that case, 600 Alapim would amount to 60,000 men, meaning the total population was around 200,000 Israelites, not 2 million then 200,000 would be a much more probable number. Or if each Alep was just 10 men, the total would just be 6,000 men with a total population of around 20,000 Israelites, which is very far short of 2 million. And I've seen liberal, non-Christian scholars argue that Alep should be understood to refer to platoons or fighting units. I've even seen one secular Jewish scholar citing it as the current scholarly consensus, not just conservative scholars, but all scholars studying this area think that Alep should be translated like platoon or fighting unit, not thousand. Whether you prefer the hyperbole view or the alternate translation, does the Pentateuch contain statements that point to Israel being a small entity? Yeah. For example, in Deuteronomy, we read, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Deuteronomy stresses that God chose the Israelites in spite of how small they were as a people, smaller than their neighbors. So no matter what interpretation of the census verses you make, the Pentateuch admits that Israel was a small people. And that's only one detail in the Exodus narrative. But notice, even if you thought the text was exaggerating the size of Israel at the time, that wouldn't show that the Exodus never happened. The Exodus could still happen, even if the text made it sound like they were more numerous than they were. Well, what about the miracles that are in the text? Well, there are several things to be said here. First, the objection based on miracles is a purely philosophical objection. If you start with a materialistic, anti-supernatural worldview that says miracles can't happen, then of course, you're going to reject the biblical accounts of miracles. But that's your philosophical worldview talking, not the historical evidence. Instead, it's your worldview overruling and discounting historical evidence. An actually neutral worldview would not prejudice the question one way or the other. From a point of neutrality, you'd be open both to the idea that miracles occur and that they don't occur. If there is evidence that they do, then you'd be open to miracles occurring on this occasion, 
And there is evidence that miracles occur, both in the ancient world and today, so we should be open to them happening in the Exodus. You said that was your first point. What's your second? Today, we tend to think of the natural and the supernatural as being distinct in a way that the ancients didn't. That includes both the Israelites and the Egyptians. Both peoples understood what we would call the supernatural as penetrating what we would call the natural world. In fact, they they really didn't have a clear distinction between the natural and the supernatural. As a result, God or the gods could providentially bring about things that we might consider natural phenomena. So like, you know, if you're praying, you got a drought and you're praying for rain, God or the gods could send you rain. And that would be an act of God or the gods, even though we would look at it and say, okay, rain is a natural thing. And that means that we need to consider whether things like the 10 plagues of the Exodus or the parting of the Red Sea could have been events that we would describe as natural, but that God providentially brought about at specific times. Huh. So what do you mean by that? Can you give us an example? Yeah, let's look at the parting of the Red Sea. In Exodus 14, it describes how this happened. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. So God used a wind to from the east that blew all night and caused a depression that drove back the waters, creating a clear path through the sea. He didn't it's not like in the Ten Commandments where all of a sudden God telekinetically parts the waters in these two big walls. No, God sends a wind that has to blow all night to push the waters back. And this is a known scientific phenomenon. It's called a wind set down. According to a 2010 article in the scientific journal PLOS One, Wind set down is the drop in water level caused by wind stress acting on the surface of a body of water for an extended period of time. As the wind blows, water recedes from the upwind shore and exposes terrain that was formerly underwater. Previous researchers have suggested wind set down as a possible hydrodynamic explanation for Moses crossing the Red Sea, as described in Exodus 14. The authors of the PLOS One article concluded that the wind God sent to blow all night, an extended period, could have caused a wind set down that blew back the water enough to allow the crossing of a key body of water during the exodus. Back in the 1990s, before that study came out, I placed a phone call to the Institute for Creation Research here in the San Diego area, and I expected them to be interested in this idea. I mean, after all, Exodus says God used a wind that blew all night to drive back the waters. But the person I spoke with was deeply skeptical of this idea, and I can only assume it was because this person had an overly modern idea that pits the concept of God using nature against the concept of God working through nature. But that's a distinction the ancient Israelites didn't have. For them, it didn't matter if God did something directly or if he did something like send a wind to do his bidding. So we need to look at the miracles of the Exodus through a different lens. Could these be events that we would call natural, but that God providentially arranged to occur under Moses? And what do we find when we consider that question? 
not only could the parting of the Reed Sea be explained by the Israelites crossing a fairly shallow body of water after a wind set down, most of the other plagues could be providentially caused natural, quote-unquote, events also. In fact, things like them occur in Egypt on a regular basis. Over a hundred years ago, Sir Flinders Petrie, one of the fathers of Egyptology, wrote, The order of the plagues was the natural order of such troubles on a lesser scale in the Egyptian season, as was pointed out long ago. So, according to Petrie, not only do things like the plagues of Exodus regularly occur in Egypt, they regularly occur in that order during the Egyptian year, just on a smaller scale. Thus, in the year preceding the Exodus, God may have amplified these phenomena to make it clear to Pharaoh and his officials that God was acting and that they had better let the Israelites go. How does the sequence of the ten plagues match up to the phenomena that can occur in Egypt? In his book, Israel in Egypt, the Evidence for the Authenticity of the Exodus Tradition, Old Testament scholar James K. Hoffmeyer summarizes the work of the Danish scholar Greta Hort on this question, beginning with the first plague in which the Nile turns to blood. She hypothesized the plague resulted from a high Nile because the four conditions describing the water in Exodus 720-24 could only be met during the annual inundation. The Nile rises in July and August, crests in September, and is usually is reddish in appearance owing to the presence of roterdae, particles of soil suspended in the water. In Exodus, the Nile is described by the blood-red color, the death of its fish, its foul smell, and its undrinkable state. Or it maintains that only one scenario could result in these four conditions, the presence of millions of flagellates, euglena sanguinea, and Haematacus pluvialis in the floodwaters. Probably originating in Lake Tana, Ethiopia, the flagellates flowed to Egypt via the Blue Nile and would account for the reddish color and the putrid smell. During the darkness of night, flagellates require higher amounts of oxygen, whereas during the day they give off an abundance of oxygen. This fluctuation, Hort explains, would cause the death of fish, which need constant amounts of oxygen. She further argues that the following five plagues came as a consequence of the first. Frogs, the second plague, are known to invade the land toward the end of the Nile's inundation in September and October. It is reported in this case that a week separated the first and the second plague, suggesting a connection between the two. The sudden death of the frogs, she believes, was because of contamination caused by Bacillus anthracis from the decomposing fish. And Bacillus anthracis is the organism that is responsible for the disease anthrax, which can affect people's lungs, digestive tract, or skin. Anthrax will appear in this interpretation of later plagues. The identity of the insect involved in the third plague has been disputed by scholars. Gnats is a common translation, while lice is also suggested. A number of commentators have understood gnats to mean a type of mosquito, an interpretation accepted by the Jerusalem Bible and Hort. The flood season in Egypt always brought with it mosquitoes that could quickly reproduce in the pools and puddles left by the retreating Nile. The flies of the fourth plague may have been dog flies known for their vicious biting. Hort considers the quick outbreak of this plague to be consistent with this type of mosquito and believes it was the cause of the sixth plague. The fifth plague affected field animals and is thought to be a murin, that is, an infectious disease affecting animals a deadly, severe, or terrible plague. Hort maintained that this plague resulted from the anthrax spread inland by the frogs associated with the second plague. 
Boils is a common understanding of the Hebrew term for the sixth plague, which would be consistent with an infection. This plague specifically hit animals and humans alike, and based on a statement in Deuteronomy, it appears that this plague primarily affected the lower extremities of people. To Hort, this is a clue that it was a fly, Stomoxus calcitrons, which carried anthrax rather than wasps, another common carrier of anthrax that typically attacks the head area. Moreover, she contends that the flies that were the pest of the fourth plague were responsible for the boils of the sixth plague. The infection would have been passed on by the flies biting humans and other animals after coming in contact with rotting dead animals, the result of the fifth plague. So on this view, plagues one through six were a chain reaction brought about by God using natural phenomena that periodically occur in Egypt, but amplifying them to make his point to the Egyptians clear. The next three, plagues seven through nine, also can be understood this way. Hail, thunder, and lightning, the seventh plague, not only caused damage to crops, but was a source of terror to the Egyptians, since hail is uncommon in Egypt. Violent rainstorms do strike Egypt from time to time, with several devastating examples occurring in recent years. The note in Exodus 9.31, that the flax and barley were ruined by the hail, is interesting in that these two crops are known to have grown together. And the statement that the wheat was not destroyed because it would have appeared after the plague of the hail is also consistent with the agricultural growth and harvest pattern. Wheat, although planted before the other two, was harvested a month and a half to two months after the barley, whereas barley and flax are among the first crops planted and harvested after the annual inundation. I'd like to stop and provide a little more detail on this point about the timing of the crops. Specifically, what Exodus says is, The flax and the barley were ruined, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the spelt were not ruined, for they are late in coming up. This means that the seventh plague occurred after the time that the barley and flax had come up and before the wheat and the spelt had come up. That indicates an accurate knowledge of the Egyptian agricultural cycle. And Hoffmeyer says, This information lends further support to Hort's thesis that the first six plagues are connected to the inundation and those that followed occurred over several following months. This attention to the period when crops matured shows that the writer of these narratives had an excellent knowledge of the Egyptian agricultural calendar. The presence of this type of information could hardly be the guesswork of an author removed by a great amount of space and time from the events. So the knowledge of the Egyptian agricultural year is evidence that what we're dealing with isn't just later guesswork from someone who's not acquainted with how the crops were grown in Egypt. The Eighth Plague offers no particular problem from a phenomenological perspective, since locust plagues were known throughout the ancient Near East and Africa as a particularly feared bane, even in modern times. The Ninth Plague, Three Days of Darkness, has long been associated with the desert sandstorms, Camsons, common to Egypt in March. The minute particles of sand transported by the Camsons, coupled with the extreme heat, made these desert storms most uncomfortable. Camsons can last up to two or three days. That brings us to the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn. And here we encounter something of a different character because no natural phenomenon strikes just the firstborn. Following Hort's thesis, the first nine plagues are natural occurrences known to Egypt, albeit magnified and occurring in close proximity. But the 10th plague, because of its selective nature, cannot be linked to any particular disease. 
Jewish scholar Nahum Sarna offers a salient assessment of the plagues on Egypt. From a theological perspective, they are instances of God's harnessing the forces of nature for the realization of his own historical purpose. The tenth and final visitation upon the Pharaoh and his people is the one plague for which no rational explanation can be given. It belongs entirely to the category of the supernatural. So, with the exception of the tenth plague, which would have required a much more unique intervention, all of the other plagues are phenomena that are known to occur in Egypt and that could have been providentially timed and amplified by God to communicate his message. A skeptic could still say that he doesn't believe that these happened, but he can't say that they involved unprecedented violations of natural laws because they don't. Maybe there's a little hyperbole here and there, but fundamentally, these are natural phenomena. All but one of them involve what look like providentially timed and amplified natural occurrences. And ultimately, it would require anti-supernatural bias for a person to say God can't intervene in nature in these ways if he chooses. That's a philosophical position rather than a scientific one. Finally, as we've said, even if a person didn't think the plagues happened at all, that's a separate question than whether the Exodus did. A person who doesn't believe in God at all could say, well, maybe the plagues didn't happen, but I still think that there's evidence that a group of Israelites migrated from Egypt to Palestine. A person thus attacking the plagues would not really be addressing the key question of the Exodus. What arguments get proposed that do address the key question? They're basically arguments from silence, which is what you would expect. I mean, after all, we don't have a huge number of references to Israel from the New Kingdom in Egypt, and you wouldn't expect to find ancient sources denying that the Exodus took place. I mean, why would the Egyptians bother writing things down like the Israelites were never here or the Israelites never left here? On the other hand, you could hypothetically find a record of an alternate account of Israelite origins, like a record from Palestine saying that the Israelites had been in the land for a thousand years during the whole or more during the whole period of Egypt's history. But we don't have a record like that. As a result, the arguments you get against the Exodus itself are basically arguments from silence. They fall into two types. Arguments from literary silence, which amounts to saying we don't have written records of the Exodus outside the Bible, so it must not have happened and arguments from archaeological silence, which amount to saying we don't have archaeological evidence confirming the exodus, so it must not have happened. Aren't arguments from silence notoriously weak? They are. Just because some someone didn't mention something isn't usually a good sign that it never happened. I mean, for example, when the Roman author Pliny the Younger discusses the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in AD 79, he doesn't mention that it buried the town of Pompeii, but it would be wrong to say that Pompeii must not have been buried because Pliny was silent about it. As they commonly say in the sciences, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. For an argument from silence to have any weight, you need more than just the silence itself. You need to argue that if something were true, then it should have been mentioned and it wasn't. Uh, 
You need to produce arguments, specific reasons why you would expect it to be mentioned. Would we expect Egyptian records to mention an event like the Exodus? Not the records we have, no. They may well have discussed it in their court records, which were temporary paper records, you know, like written on papyrus scrolls. But papyrus disintegrates too easily, and so we have almost no Egyptian court records on papyrus. As a result, the volume of surviving papyrus court records is far too small and fragmentary for us to find mention of the Exodus in it. And then what about all the inscriptions they put on monuments? We have a lot more of those because stone monuments and sheltered tombs survive the ages much better than papyrus does. So we have lots of inscriptions and paintings that the pharaohs had their scribes and artists put on the monuments and on tomb walls. But these wouldn't contain a mention of an event like the Exodus. The Egyptians wrote on monuments to celebrate things, to celebrate their achievements and successes. That's true of the inscriptions they put on temples to record their successes for the gods and thank them for them. It's true of what they put on tomb walls to preserve a record of their accomplishments in life. And it's true of what they wrote on freestanding monuments so people could pass by and learn about the great successes of the person who put up the monument. As a result, Egyptian monuments don't record failures and defeats. In fact, as Bob Breyer points out in his outstanding course on the history of Egypt, which we'll have a link to, the pharaohs never recorded their defeats in battle. From the monuments, you'd think they won every battle they ever fought. Only we can tell they didn't, because in some periods, they are winning battles closer and closer to home as they were losing territory to their competitors. So since the Exodus would have represented a defeat for the Egyptians, a successful slave revolt and escape, we wouldn't expect them to be commemorating it and go, yay, we had this, <laughs> this successful slave revolt and escape. Thank you so much, Horus. <laughs> so what about the archaeological arguments from silence? What kind of archaeological finds would we expect to make connected with the Exodus? In the biblical account, the event involved both the Egyptians and the Israelites, so you could potentially find things that both of them left behind. In the case of the Egyptians, they had a military expedition going after the Israelites, and you might find things that the soldiers dropped. Also, the Exodus reports the wind set down stopping and the waters reflooding at the point of the Reed Sea crossing while the Egyptians were in it. So even if they survived, the Egyptians might have had to abandon their equipment there, you know, like spears and swords and chariots. Haven't there been people who have claimed we've found things like chariot wheels at some of these relevant bodies of water? Yeah, and the truth is no such Egyptian chariot wheels have been found. All of the contrary claims are based on hoaxes. Some are even based on satirical news websites that have a disclaimer at the bottom of the pages saying the content is fictional. So do not believe reports about us having found such things at the body at the bottom of the Red Sea or other bodies of water. OK, but is it significant that we haven't found such things? Not in the slightest. This is an archaeological argument from silence that does not work. First, 
Egyptian chariots were meant to be fast, lightweight, and highly maneuverable. As a result, they were made out of wood and leather. But wood and leather will rot away after 3,200 years. And even if some of, them sur- some of it survives, they'll get covered by sea life, they'll get buried. There are all kinds of reasons you wouldn't find them, even if you went looking. And even if you did find something, like maybe a sword, how do you know it was one of the swords that was used when chasing the Israelites? It could have been a sword that, you know, somebody was out on a barge and got drunk and dropped it overboard, or their barge sank and we find a whole bunch of swords down here. All kinds of things. Also, there's a second problem. Nobody has really been looking. We don't know precisely where the Israelites did the crossing, and nobody has done a marine survey of the whole area of all these different bodies of water looking for remains like this. I mean, sure, some individuals have gone scuba diving, but nothing like the kind of widespread survey you'd need. Third, If, as biblical scholars think, the number of Israelites who took part in the Exodus was relatively small, well, then the expedition the Egyptians sent after them would have been small, too, and that would make it even harder to find remains. So there are other problems, too, but we'll leave it at that. This is an archaeological argument from silence that just doesn't work. What about finding archaeological remains from the Israelites in the Sinai Peninsula between Egypt and Israel? What things would they leave behind? Well, they leave behind trash, uh, occasional personal items that got lost, and bodies, because a lot of them died during the wandering in the wilderness. But again, we encounter problems. First, if the number of Israelites were relatively small, then that would make it harder to find remains. Second, nobody has done a widespread archaeological survey of the whole Sinai Peninsula. It covers 23,000 square miles. Third, it's divided into a mountainous area that is not easily traversed and a lower region up by the Mediterranean that is more easily crossed. But the more easily traversable part has been in use for the last 3,200 years because the peninsula is a land bridge between Africa and Asia, so lots of people have been going through there, and lots of people have been dropping stuff there. In fact, they've been doing that since long before the Exodus. So even if you did find a bit of Israelite trash, you know, some, I don't know, chicken bones or something, quail bones, or since God fed him with quail, you find some quail bones there. How do you know it's Israelite? I mean, if you just had a bone from an animal that an Israelite eaten, how would you know that it was an Israelite that ate it? The same thing goes for lost personal objects or even a body. How would you know when it's an Israelite after all this time? Also, the climate in the peninsula doesn't favor most things surviving for 3,200 years. The Israelites were on the run and living a nomadic life, and they weren't setting up monuments to survive the ages. So we wouldn't expect to be able to both find and identify Israelite artifacts in the Sinai from the Exodus. All right, let's turn to positive arguments for the Exodus then. What do we need to say here? We've already mentioned the key piece of evidence, which is the fact that the Old Testament mentions the Exodus occurring. And as we said, just because the Old Testament is a religious text, that doesn't mean we can dismiss its historical value 
any more than the fact that Egyptian texts also are religious. You know, they're thanking the gods for this battle and that battle and this harvest and that harvest. Doesn't mean we can dismiss what they have to say. And it isn't just the book of Exodus that talks about this event. It's mentioned in multiple books, including all of the rest of the Pentateuch, the various historical books in the Old Testament. It's in the Psalms. It's in the prophets. The Exodus is the single most mentioned event in all of the Old Testament. And that's for a very good reason. It's Israel's founding origin story, their national epic. So we don't just have one Israelite source mentioning it. We have bunches of them, multiple independent sources, because the Bible was not written by one person. It was written by multiple people. So we have multiple independent Israelite sources, different authors over a long period of time, indicating a widespread tradition was being handed down that this had occurred. What do people who deny the Exodus propose as an alternative? How do they explain the way Israel as a nation came into existence? In general terms, they'll say that the Israelites simply were a group of Canaanites and that they eventually took over the territory in which they already lived, either as part of a peasant revolt or through a slower, gradual process. But if that were the case, why would they invent the story of the Exodus? I mean, every people has an account of its origins, or what you could call its origin story. In the case of the United States, our origin story involves the original 13 rebellious colonies that seceded from England in the American War of Independence starting in 1776. In the case of the United Kingdom, the origin story involves the uniting of the Kingdom of England with the Kingdom of Scotland in 1701. And in the case of Rome, the story involves the founding of the city by the hero Romulus. But everybody's got an origin story. History does not know of a people who, if asked about their origins, would say, well, we don't really know who we are or how we got here, where we came from. The Israelites were no exception to this. Their national origin story involved the Exodus. Is every nation's origin story always correct? Are there any that have misleading or false ones? It's certainly true that you can't take everybody's origin story at face value. For example, certain long-settled people have no accurate memory of their true origins, and they have provided an account based on folklore and mythology. When this happens, they may say that their people was created by the gods or otherwise entered the world in the same territory they now occupy. This is the case, for example, with the Hopi and Zuni tribes here in North America. Their origin stories hold that human beings, including themselves, first emerged into this world out of a hole in a rocky mound known as the Sipapuni, which is located on the Colorado River near Grand Canyon National Park. However, if modern scientific accounts are remotely accurate, their ancestors originated in the Old World and migrated over the Bering Land Bridge connecting Siberia and Alaska. Sketchy origin stories are found in the Old World as well. The Egyptians, similarly, had been in Egypt for so long that they had no memory of their ancestors ever having lived anywhere else, and they set their creation stories in the Nile Valley. Interestingly, their stories also feature a primeval mound, which they called the Ben-Ben. 
But one thing that the Hopi, the Zuni, and the Egyptian origin stories have in common is that they describe events occurring long before recorded history. In the absence of historical memory, folklore filled in the gaps. That's quite different from the origin stories of the U.S. and the U.K., which deal with events only a few hundred years ago. Exactly. If you read a modern account of the American Revolution or the British Acts of Union, the distance in time between the account and the events it describes is only 250 or 300 years. So how does Israel's origin story fare by comparison? For much of church history, the book of Exodus was regarded as having been authored by Moses and thus having been recorded and produced within the same generation as the events it describes, in which case it would be a contemporary account. More recently, scholars have drifted away from this view, and by the 20th century, it became common to hold that the Pentateuch, which Exodus is a part of, is a composite of four principal sources known by the initials J, E, D, and P. The parts of the book of Exodus that deal with the Exodus event itself were held to be derived from the J, or Yahwist source, and the E, or Elohist source, which are named after the terms they use for God. The Yahwist source uses Yahweh as a term for God, and the Elohist source uses Elohim as a term for God. Now, scholars debated precisely when these sources were written, but it was common to date J to sometime between 950 and 850 BC, and it was common to date E to sometime between 850 and 750 BC. More recently, the JEDP theory has fallen out of favor, at least in its classical form, and there is no current consensus about what should replace it. Personally, I think that the Pentateuch was written around 1000 BC. However, if for purposes of argument, we were to accept the dates proposed previously, we would have references to the Exodus event in Israel's literature between 950 and 750 BC. So call it 850 BC. What about other ancient Israelite works? You said that the Exodus is mentioned in the prophets. Even if we were to take a more skeptical view of the Pentateuch and think it's composed of these later sources, the date of our earliest Exodus references wouldn't change much because there are multiple references to it in the prophets. Thus, in Micah 6.4, God declares, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage. And in Hosea 11.1, he says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, Micah prophesied between the times of King Jotham and King Hezekiah, which puts his ministry between 750 BC and 687 BC. Hosea prophesied between the times of King Uzziah and King Hezekiah, which puts his ministry between 783 BC and 687 BC. So we would still have references to the Exodus in Israelite literature by the 700s BC. The fact that we have multiple such references, because there are others, means that the tradition was widespread and thus has to be dated earlier to allow time for it to become popular and be mentioned multiple times in the surviving literature. We would thus conclude that the story had to be in circulation 
by around 850 BC, a century before Micah and Hosea. If we know when the Exodus gets mentioned in Israelite literature, when did the Exodus itself occur? This is a subject that is debated, and we'll have a future episode on just this topic. However, here we'll just give a really quick overview. The traditional date for the event is in the 1400s BC. However, more recently, a date in the 1200s BC has been proposed. The evidence, as we'll see in that future episode, supports the latter. So for our present purposes, we'll go with that account that it occurred in the 1200s BC. If accounts of the Exodus were circulating in Israel by 850 BC, and if the event itself would have taken place around 1250 BC, that's a, only a gap of 400 years. And for centuries is not a long time when it comes to national origin stories. Even in a purely oral or illiterate society that depends entirely on tradition for knowledge of the past, collective memory can preserve the core facts regarding where people came from for that length of time. But Israel was not a purely oral society at this time. We have artifacts with Hebrew writing that date from the time of King David's reign around the 10th century BC. Given the fragmentary nature of the historical record in this period, writing had to have been in use in Israelite society even earlier. Very conservatively, we could push it back by a century to the 11th century BC, but that would reduce the time of the proposed date of the Exodus, you know, the 13th century. BC and the Israelite use of writing in the 11th century BC to just 200 years. So they'd only have to keep the memory of the Exodus alive orally for 200 years. And that's not at all a long period of time for oral tradition to preserve memories of something as important as how our nation got here. There's no reason that it need be that long, though, because the Israelites could have been using writing even earlier. In fact, according to the Exodus account, they came from Egypt, which had been a literate culture for 2,000 years by that point. Even if they hadn't yet begun to write their own language in the Phoenician-based alphabet that they later used, the Israelites' origin story attests that they had been exposed to a literate culture, and thus they could have been using writing even before the Exodus. But there's another reason why we should give credence to the Exodus. In the past, you've discussed the Exodus in relation to something called the criterion of embarrassment. What is that? The criterion of embarrassment is a principle that's used in various fields. Essentially, what it means is that a person is more likely to be telling the truth than not if what he's saying could be embarrassing to him. For example, if a suspect in a murder case admits in court that he was at the scene of the murder at the time of the murder, he's likely telling the truth because the admission that he was there makes it more likely he was guilty. So it's embarrassing to him. If he were going to lie, he'd likely say that he was nowhere near the scene of the murder at the time of the murder. So if he does acknowledge he was there at the time, he's probably telling the truth. The same principle is used in biblical studies. When the biblical authors admit things that could be embarrassing, 
even skeptical scholars take note and acknowledge they're telling the truth, like when the Gospels admit that Peter denied Jesus three times. That's a highly embarrassing thing for Jesus's chief disciple to do. So even skeptics take that seriously because of the criterion of embarrassment and will say, yeah, Peter denied Jesus. And how does this relate to the Exodus? The criterion of embarrassment is relevant to the Exodus because when it comes to an origin story like this, you wouldn't make it up. Nobody wants to look down on their ancestors, and national pride pushes people to glorify their ancestors and the founding of their nation. I mean, even if, let's say, your nation was founded as a penal colony in a land filled with vicious drop bears, <laughs> you'll want to find admirable things to say about your ancestors and talk about their heroic struggle in this new and difficult land. But you wouldn't invent the idea that your nation was founded by convicts if it wasn't true. Long before 1984, inconvenient facts like that would have been conveniently sent down the memory hole, if at all possible. We see this all the time in the ancient world. Like we said, if you read the military records on the monuments of the Egyptian pharaohs, guess what? They never lost a battle. Though we do sometimes, as we said, read about them winning battles progressively closer to home as they retreat. If the Israelites had been in Canaan, since time immemorial, Canaan is the promised land. If they'd been in Canaan since time immemorial and didn't know how they got there, they would have done what other ancient peoples did and said they were created there. They might have even depicted the Canaanites they displaced as invaders whose yoke they threw off. Or they might have said that their ancestors came from a powerful nearby civilization that they admired, the way the Romans said Romulus was a descendant of the Trojan hero Aeneas. But they would not have invented a shameful past that depicted their ancestors as runaway slaves in a neighboring country that they hated and that periodically conquered them in their own land, which, of course, Egypt did. Slavery was not a desirable condition in the ancient world, and the Jewish people were as sensitive to that as anybody. Thus, the Gospel of John reports that on one occasion, Jesus' opponents declared, We are descendants of Abraham and have never been in bondage to anyone. That's in John 8.33, if you want to look it up. But it's a hasty generalization that not only ignores the bondage in Egypt, but the subsequent conquests by the Babylonians and their present subjection by the Romans. But it testifies to the common feeling of national pride that leads people to minimize or ignore uncomfortable facts about their past. That's what they're doing by saying we've never been anybody's slaves. So we were slaves in Egypt is an uncomfortable fact, and it's not something that the Israelites would have made up. They especially would not have made up the idea of being runaway slaves as their national origin story. Is there any additional evidence for the Israelites and the Exodus? There's actually more than we can cover, but one particular piece of evidence that I'd like to mention is a monument known as the Merneptah Stella. It's the earliest reference we have to Israel outside the Bible. Now, a stella is a common kind of monument that the Egyptians would make. It's shaped like a classic tombstone, a flat rectangular slab with a rounded top. This one is made out of granite, 
and like other Egyptian monuments, it was made to celebrate victories. In this case, the military victories of the pharaoh Merneptah, who reigned between 1213 and 1203 BC. Like all pharaohs, Merneptah's job was to take the army, go to other places, beat up foreign people, and take their stuff. A lot like the Goa'uld, actually. The Egyptians <laughs> were basically desert pirates. So, in the course of recording his victories on the Stella, Merneptah writes about the peoples he's conquered and robbed, and says, Hatti is pacified. The Canaan has been plundered into every sort of woe. Ashkelon has been overcome. Gezer has been captured. Yanoam is made non-existent. Israel is laid waste and his seed is not. So there we have a reference to Israel. Merneptah says that he's conquered it and killed many Israelites. That's what he means when he says that Israel's seed is not. He's killed a bunch of Israelite people. But for our purposes, the inscription on the stela is significant, not just because it refers to Israel, but because of the way it refers to Israel. So what's significant about the way the stela refers to Israel? Egyptian writing uses a set of symbols known, I mean, they, they have alphabetic symbols and things like that, but they also have a set of symbols known as determinatives to help the reader identify the kind of thing that's being described. And that's, in fact, what a cartouche is. Cartouches, you've probably seen, there's, there, there are those oval circles you see drawn around the names of pharaohs. They're magic circles that are meant to protect the pharaoh magically by encircling his name, but they're also determinatives that tell you the person being described as a pharaoh. Only pharaohs get those around their names. But Egyptian writing has many different kinds of determinatives. For example, when an ordinary man's name is given, a symbol representing a seated man is often placed after it. And when a woman's name is given, a symbol representing a seated woman is used after it. My favorite determinative is known as the evil bird. It is a small little sparrow looking bird that they put after things that are regarded as small, weak, evil, bad, or annoying. <laughs> you know, sparrows, that might not be inaccurate. <laughs> so what determinative does the Stella use for Israel? On the Merneptah Stella, when Israel's name is given, a determinative indicating a foreign people is used. This determinative is usually used for nomadic people that do not have a settled location, suggesting the inscription was made during the period of wandering before Israel was settled in the land. And that would suggest one of a number of pieces of evidence that the exodus occurred in the reign of Pharaoh Ramesses II from 1279 to 1213 BC. He was the father of Merneptah. So for our purposes, the significant thing is it shows that when Merneptah wrote the Stella, Israel was not yet a settled people. That's what that determinative suggests. Instead, they were a wandering people, and they were wandering in the right part of the world just two centuries before they were a settled, established kingdom with kings like Saul, David, and Solomon. And that strongly suggests and supports the idea of an exodus event from Egypt, followed by the conquest of Canaan. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on whether the exodus actually happened? 
we have good reason to hold that the Exodus happened. We have multiple references to it from multiple historical sources, namely the different independent sources that are found today collected in the Hebrew Old Testament. This story was written not long after the event occurred in historical terms, and it is not the kind of national origin story that people would have made up because nobody wants to say our fathers were a bunch of runaway slaves if that's not true and undeniable. And we have no contradictory evidence from this period. Simply from the perspective of reason, the evidence points to the Exodus being a real event. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listener? We'll have a link to a book on called Five Views of the Exodus. It's one of those roundtable books that has, has different scholars weighing in with different positions. It's mostly about when Exodus occurred, but it also talks about evidence supporting the different theories and that the Exodus occurred. We'll also have links to James Hoffmeyer's book, Israel in Egypt, documenting that they were in Egypt, and his book, Israel in Sinai, talking about the evidence for the sojourn in Sinai part of the Exodus. Also, Kenneth Kitchen's book on the reliability of the Old Testament, Bob Breyer's outstanding course, The History of Ancient Egypt from the Great Courses, Gary Rinsberg's course, also from the Great Courses, on the book of Genesis and his course on the Dead Sea Scrolls. They don't actually deal with the Exodus, really, but they're, they're really good courses. <laughs> We'll have an article I wrote on Did the Exodus Happen? and a playlist on the Exodus from David Falk, who is an Egyptologist and an evangelical. And then finally, we'll have that plus one article on wind set down so you can read about how that works. Okay. And David Falk's playlist is uh, YouTube videos, right? Yeah, it's YouTube videos on the Exodus. Awesome. So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, we've got an archaeological theme. First article is actually relevant, quite relevant to what we were talking about today. It's called, Why is the Society for American Archaeology Promoting Indigenous Creationism? And what the article is really about is, I mean, its main subject is that there is a, a, a major archaeological society here in America that is acting as if various Native American creation stories are literally true when the scientific evidence points in another direction. So, for example, there are various Native American tribes like we've so we found, for example, archaeological remains of people who were 10,000 years old here in the Americas. Well, they are almost certainly not related to the tribe that currently has that area because, let's say it's uh, Hopi or Zuni, and because over that 10,000 years, the tribes have moved around. And so they're, they're certainly not members of, of a present tribe. In fact, the Hopi and Zuni as distinct tribes don't go back that far. But the Hopi and Zuni tribes will say, well, wait a minute, we came up out of the Sipapuni. We've always been here. So that person must be a member of our tribe, and we have a right to reclaim its, his remains and not have them subject to scientific study. So by supporting the literal, the idea that these creation stories are literally true of these tribes, it deprives us of scientific evidence. And so that's the main point of the story, that this is a problem. And it, it's a very interesting read. But for our purposes in today's episode, notice 
This is an example of people saying, we've always been here. This is where, this is how humanity entered the world. This is where our group came from. We've just always been here. So it documents part of what we were talking about earlier. Now, there are lots of other interesting things archaeologically. People may know, uh, I'm, virtually everyone's heard of Stonehenge, and many people will know that Stonehenge is aligned to the solstices that occur, uh, you know, the longest and shortest period, uh, periods of, of day and night. And a lot of people imagine that, sol that Stonehenge was like a summer solstice monument, but really the evidence is that it wasn't. It was, and we'll talk about this in a future episode just on Stonehenge. It really looks like it had they had a big festival at the winter solstice, not the summer one. So it was when when the day was at its shortest that everybody was partying at Stonehenge. Yeah, but moderns um, don't want to go party at Stonehenge on December twenty first. They'd rather yeah. do it on June twenty first, Don. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's more pleasant then. But Sol Stonehenge is far from the only ancient site that is aligned to the solstices. So we'll have an article on five solstice sites that aren't Stonehenge. And these include Petra, which is the uh, city that you, the massive, impressive, or it's got massive, impressive architecture. It's a city in the Jordanian desert that you see in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Also the Spiro Mounds in Oklahoma. So you could check them out if you're in that part of the country. The Nabta Playa in Egypt. Big Rock, California, which is near me in Southern California, and I knew it previously. I didn't realize it was a solstice site. I knew it as the place they had the big UFO convention every year in the 50s and 60s, the big famous Big Rock UFO convention, and also one in Germany called Gossick Creek. I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but if you're in Germany or elsewhere in, in uh, Europe, you could maybe go there and check it out. So five solstice sites that aren't Stonehenge. Excellent. All right. That should do it for us this time. Uh, we'd love to ask the, the listener, what are your theories about the Exodus and whether it happened? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, or by sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world. Folks, make sure to join the StarQuest fan club by texting StarQuest to 66866. Yeah, send StarQuest to 66866 and then follow the instructions from there. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>